Man, well, this morning we will be continuing our, our series in Exodus. We've been going through this year, and then um, starting two weeks ago, Peter uh, started the first command. We're going to slow down through the Ten Commandments um, as in our series on, on Exodus. So if you have your Bibles and want to open up to Exodus chapter 20, um, we will be looking at the second commandment today. And, uh, and I think it's just good as a reminder uh, as we're going through Exodus to just step back and, and think back of the, of the context where we're at. So uh, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years. Uh, in that time, uh, they just really lost their identity as a people. They were absorbed into slavery and they cried out to God and God heard them in their distress. God heard them cry out to him, and he sent a deliverer in the person of Moses um, to go before Pharaoh and to deliver them. We looked at the, the fact that God, through miraculous events, called his people out of slavery through the ten plagues and through the crossing of the Red Sea uh, into uh, the wilderness to Mount Sinai. Um, and a few weeks ago, when Peter mentioned something that, that just stuck out with me, was that God delivered his people before he delivered the law. The redemption came first. And then he called him to Mount Sinai and delivered his law. And just the, the truth that it is by grace we are saved. It is not by us earning our way or fulfilling the commandments and therefore making ourselves ready for God. God called a, a group of slaves who had nothing to offer him out of their slavery. And then he created a people, a covenant people for himself. And so when we come to the Ten Commandments, we have this, this uh, commitment. God has called his people and said, because... I delivered you because of my love that I've demonstrated to you. Here is what I expect or, or, or desire for you to walk in in a close relationship with him. See, as, uh, as we just even consider the story of the Bible, that God created us to be in a relationship with him. It was always God's intention for his people to know him, to have a personal relationship with him, to walk with him, uh, to commune with him. Well, we have this, this problem of sin that has come in and disrupted all that. And so as we go through um, the Old Testament, we see the disruption of sin and the struggles that it has permeated our culture. And so as we come into the Ten Commandments, we have this, this pause of the Big Ten. It's not an exhaustive list of things, and, uh, but it is some that will shape how we view our relationship with God and our relationship with others. And we looked at the, the fact that the first four are, in fact, focused on our relationship with God, our horizontal relationship with God. That, and really, as Lakeside, we sum that up as love God with all of our heart, mind, and strength. Um, and then the, the last six are the care for others. It's our relationship with one another and, uh, and our inner human relationships. And, and we put those together. Even Jesus says in the, the New Testament that all the law and the prophets hang on, on, on loving God and loving others. And so these Ten Commandments are loving God and loving others. And so uh, with that as a reminder, let's uh, get into Exodus 20. I'm gonna, we're going to be focusing on verses 4 through 6, but let's start in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is, that is in earth beneath or that is in the, the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. As we uh, begin to open this up, starting in verse 1, I mean, the commandment 2 is no carved images, no likenesses of any kind. And, And coming to this, I wanted to think through you know, as we think of carved image, we don't really see a lot of idol worship in our culture. We may not think that we have a lot from this, this passage. We're not setting up uh, images all over the place. Um, or at least we don't like to think we do. But how do we, how do we see this in the context here? And, uh, and first I see that the second commandment is an invitation to genuine worship. The proper, pure worship of the one true God. The commandment number one says... You shall have no other gods before me because he is the only God. In John 17, 3, Jesus says, and this is eternal life to know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent, that there is only one true God and therefore we are invited into worship when he says, don't make these carved images, don't bow down or serve them for your God is a jealous God that he, uh, there, there is a thing called worship, that we were created to worship. In Ecclesiastes, we see that God set eternity in our hearts, that we know that there's something bigger than us and that we desire to worship. We're all worshiping something, and the second commandment is inviting us to worship, but to worship properly, to worship God on his terms and not our own. And and even Jesus said in John 4, as he's talking to the Samaritan woman, he says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. God is saying we worship him in spirit and truth, not by an idol, not by a carved image, not by a likeness of any kind, but by his word. Verse 1, it says, God spoke all these words. Words is uh, from the Hebrew word debar, and it's a very specific word that carries a lot of weight. And as I was focusing on this, it was just uh, exciting to me to think through the implication of this word. One, uh, in Hebrew, the term debar means both word and deed. It's not just something we hear, but it's something we do. Um, Also, debar means to formalize, to deliberately establish and pronounce something's name or definition. This causes a thing to become real in the mind of whoever understands this word, name, or definition, and this in turn explains why all of creation was spoken into being. The word here, that God is speaking words of life, that he spoke the world into existence, and that he speaks a self-revelation to us that changes our hearts and mind, that brings into existence who God is in our heart by his word, by his truth, and nothing else. And that, that, that's what he's calling us to. He's inviting us to believe him, to take him at his word. And uh, these 10 words or these 10 commandments are, uh, are calling us to something greater beyond ourselves, to the, the life that God has intended us. Also saw um, this invitation here in the, in the, the, the commandments to worship as pictured in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 22. You're welcome to turn there for a minute. We're going to look at uh, the rich young ruler. And says, in verse 17 it says, And as he, the, the young man, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? 
No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. And Jesus lists off some of the commandments, but not all the commandments. He focuses on the six commandments, or I think there's five there, but it's believed that two are combined in one. But the, he's focused on the, the commandments to how we treat one another. But what doesn't he quote here? He doesn't say one God. He doesn't say no carved image. He doesn't say do not take the Lord's name in vain. He doesn't say remember the Sabbath. The four commands that are our relationship with God. So he's saying, this guy said, well, I've done a pretty good job caring for other people. But the, the statement Jesus gives him to sell all his possessions says, what's in place of God in your life? What's your relationship with God like? You are invited into worship, but there's some things that prevent us from worship. When we place something, some value on something more important than God. As uh, uh, Tim Keller says that, an idol is taking a good thing and making it an ultimate thing, something you're willing to sacrifice for uh, and sacrifice uh, your relationship with God for, that you put it in place of God in your life. Uh, this, this passage isn't intended to tell us that wealth is bad and that if you have wealth that you have to sell everything, give everything away, and, and, and follow the poor, unless, in fact, uh, that is your idol. <laughs> Jesus is saying we need to submit our idols to, to God, to follow him full-heartedly and uh, without reservation. And so as we begin to look at the second commandment, it is an invitation to worship, to surrender whatever is keeping us uh, from truly experiencing worshiping the one true God. The second commandment, do not make any carved images, uh, is a reminder of the human condition. We have this tendency to want to make God in our image. It's very specifically, he says here, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. Uh, you know, as is um, all cultures who, who set up statues and idols, they would, craftsmen would craft something with their own hands and then bow down and worship it. Um, and he says, don't craft an image of God in your, um, in your image. Don't you make something to represent God. For worship is something that is given to us by God. It's a re revelation by God. It's not something that is man-centered or man-created, that we can't create these things, and, and we're, we have this tendency to want to do it ourselves. God called the people out, redeemed them by grace, and then invited them into a covenant relationship with him through the commandments. Again, not the other way, as our human condition is, we want to say, I can earn God. I can do enough good. I can make myself right and, uh, and do it on my own. Paul, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God, in verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, 
but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to dishonoring their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As Paul walks, about, walks us through the human condition, the sinful heart, the desire of mankind to suppress the truth of who God is and, and to replace him with a created being an image, a person, a, uh, a creation of their, their own making. And as we think about this, do not make any carved image or any likeness, uh, we, we might immediately dismiss the, the idol's of the past and not look at the fact that we like to put God in our own box. We like to create God, our image of God looks like me. Like I, I'm guilty of this all the time where I realize that I like to make God look like Brad because Brad's pretty comfortable to me. Uh, he likes what I like and he, he, does, he has no problems with the things that I do, so Brad's a, a, a good God for me. No, bad, but Brad is bad, right? I, I've said this before. Like, it's, it's when God looks like me um, and I've created this box, like I have distorted who God is. When I come to his word and, it's, and he says something, and I'm like, ah, like I need to change. I need to repent. I need to submit to him. This is when God broadens my view of who he is. I remember a time when I thought I had God pretty much figured out and, uh, and then God said, no, you don't. And he revealed to me that he is far greater than anything I could imagine. If I can figure him out, that, that means that God is human, that God is small and simple, and, uh, and he is not. He is other. He is transcendent. And so I have to be careful that in my own human condition, my struggle with sin in my life, that I have the propensity and tendency to create God in my own image. Sure, I may not carve something out of wood to worship, but I am, uh, I am continually struggling inside to to remind myself that God is bigger than me and that, and that's, that we all have to fight this battle. Even as uh, they were, the Israelites were out at Mount Sinai and God delivered the, the, the Ten Commandments to them and spoke to them from the mountain, they were afraid and uh, they said to Moses, you go up and, and represent us before God. We don't want this. It's a, 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 ter- a terrifying thing. Um, as Moses goes up, the people, the people begin to forget that they just saw God move. When, when God delivered them from Egypt, the 10 plagues dismantled the gods of Egypt, that these gods are nothing, that God is greater than their gods. The, the, the exodus from uh, Egypt showed that the God of Israel was not just a, a localized God, but he was a universal God, that he was over all things, uh, that he was greater than Pharaoh and, and all the, all the um, gods of Egypt and he demonstrated with great power and then he spoke to them he, he led them uh, by a pillar of, of cl- uh, fire at night and cloud by day and they saw him move in so many tremendous ways and yet uh, they began to forget right at the base of Mount Sinai uh, who God was and so in Exodus chapter 32 this is the account of the people it says when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. And for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold 
that are in your ears uh, your son, and your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built, built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. So even though they had heard God said, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image, they made for themselves a golden calf. He said, no likeness of any time, of nothing in heaven or on earth. And yet they did. But Aaron, for his part, believed that this calf, this golden calf, represented Jehovah, uh, Yahweh as deliverance, the, the strength of God. And so he set up an altar and called them to worship Yahweh. And so, um, interesting in, in the pagan idol worship that many households would have different gods. They did have a national god, uh, a family god, and an individual god. And we, and we actually see this through the, the people of Israel. Being in Egypt for over 400 years, their culture had influenced their thinking and their view of, of God and gods and, and idols and whatnot. And so we do see throughout the Old Testament different times when people are taking idols and they're bowing down to other gods. And, uh, and yet they would still say that Yahweh is the God of Israel. They would say that they served God, but they also worship these other gods. And so God, in the second commandment, is calling out a very specific thing that people thought that they could build a calf to represent the strength of God and worship God in purity and in truth. And the, and the thing is, is that that is not right. God said, don't do this. And uh, because any image created to represent God obscures the truth about who God is. The golden calf, though, might be an image of strength, but it doesn't show his love, his compassion, his mercy. Uh, you can uh, create something to display the love of God, and that you don't, and that image doesn't show the, the holiness and justice of God. That any image that we create takes away from who God is, and it distorts our view um, based on what, what I like about God. If you will, it's kind of like the argument around the table in Talladega Nights, where he says, I like little baby Jesus. That's who I like to pray to, because that made him comfortable. And they discuss these different views, and I'm um, not recommending the movie, but uh, there's this interesting, like everybody wants to pray to a God that, they, that makes them feel comfortable, right? Um, and, then, and that is... Uh, not the way it's supposed to be. We come to God and how he's revealed himself to us in his spoken word. The God who speaks, who's revealed himself. It's the self-disclosure of God for our good to invite us into worship, to know the one true God, and to walk with him. And so uh, what we see here is the people missed out on trusting God and taking him at his word, even though they saw these miracles. And so but I do think one of the interesting things as in a moment, we'll get into some of the, about the grace of God, but Aaron, the brother of Moses, should have known better, should not have carved the, the golden calf. It should not have led them in, in worship that was impure. And yet later, Aaron is set up as the high priest. <laughs> the chief, the priestly line comes from this man. And so, again, to see the continual grace of God, that even when we make mistakes and we do sinful things, 
His forgiveness transcends all that. Another reason we shouldn't create images, whether they're carved or mental images or others, that the moment we create these images, we stop living by faith, is what Tony Evans said. For without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him, Hebrews eleven six. That it is to be taking God at his word and believing him and that we go to his word to see who he is and specifically in the face of Christ. Having um, any kind of image or understanding of God that falls short of the, the revealed word of God is a generational problem. It, all it takes is for one generation to forget God or to create God in their own image and then to pass those lies on down to their families. So when it says that he, for I am the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Saying that the misperception of God is easily passed on to our kids and to grandkids and their grandkids. It's a trap that is, a, a, that is in our arrogance, in our rebellion, in our sinfulness. We say we know better how to represent God than God himself. And so we want to make him into our image and that begins to create a group that hates God, is how God terms it. Um, but the beautiful thing is in the gospel that Jesus has come to set us free from generational sins. That when Christ comes, he sets us free. Anyone who turns to Christ in, in repentance has forgiveness, and it breaks that cycle. But it is important that a lie about God is easily transferred. Sometimes we spread those lies faster than we spread the truth. And we have to be so careful about that because of our own human condition and because of our sinfulness. Then it concludes here, he says he's a jealous God, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And then so I just want to conclude our time with the steadfast love of Christ. That, that Christ is, uh, is the answer, the fulfillment, if you will, of the second commandment. Do not create a carved image, but Jesus Christ is the exact imprint, the representation of God. That he came into our space to reveal God to us um, in, in human form for us to connect with and know. That because of the sin that has been passed down from generation to generation, that God knew that he had to do something to redeem the people, even beyond calling them out of slavery, giving them a covenant language, but they're still broken. They're still sinners, and so Christ came. Romans 5, 8 says, but God shows his love for us in this, that while we're still sinners, Christ died for us. One commentator said this uh, when, he t when talking about the, the jealousy of God. Jealousy is a strong desire to maintain relational faithfulness that you believe does belong to you. God's jealous love caused him to hate sin and all that dishonors God so much that he gave his life to vanquish evil and idolatry once and for all. This fact that God knew that our hearts are, are prone to wander, that we are uh, quick to replace him with, with sin. And so he had to do something to overcome our sinful hearts. And so he entered into the world. Colossians 1, 15 through 23 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
For by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, for him, uh, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything we might, he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So as we consider what Christ was willing to do, he purely represents God. He is the image of God that we should look to. When we struggle with trying to understand God, we go to his word, we hear his word, and we see him in the person of Christ. And that through knowing Christ is the key to unlocking the scriptures for us to know God. In his book, Knowing God, J.I. Packer has a whole chapter on this. Um, but he concludes with how can we tell uh, if we're in, in proper worship? And he says, well, the test is this. The God of the Bible has spoken in his son. The light of the knowledge of his glory is given to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Do I look habitually to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as showing me the final truth about the nature and grace of God? Do I see all the purposes of God as centering upon him? If I have been enabled to see this and in, my, in mind and heart to go to Calvary and lay hold of the Calvary solution, then I can know that I truly worship the true God and that he is my God and that I am even now enjoying eternal life according to our Lord's own definition. Now this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. It is through knowing Christ and seeing the finished work of Christ on the cross and his love demonstrated to us that we understand the steadfast love of God. That when we love him, we experience the sweet relationship, the worship that we are called to. Matt Boswell, uh, a worship leader, said, the next time a worship service begins, even today, even as we close in our song, pay close attention to the invitation that rings through the air we are called not because of our own righteousness or our works or our piety. We are welcomed because God has chosen us. Christ has purchased us. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us for eternity. This call is for the weak and the weary, the poor and the helpless. The call to worship is a call to come and drink deeply from the well that will never run dry. So as we conclude our time on the, on the second commandment, have no carved images, uh, no likeness of any kind. It is, it is a commandment of seek to worship God in purity and in truth, in spirit and truth, by his word and his testimony and the face of Christ. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word that speaks truth. Lord, that, that your word is powerful enough to awaken us from our sleep, from our dead state, Lord, from our sinfulness to, to give us eyes to see you and to, to worship you. Lord, as uh, we are so prone to recreate who you are in our own image based on our own understandings, Lord, that we must uh, recognize uh, our, our constant and continual need for your word, uh, for your truth. Lord, we thank you that you loved us so much that you were willing to send your son uh, to enter this space and to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins, and that when we look to Christ, we see your face. 
that we can know that we are worshiping in spirit and truth because of who Christ is. And so, Lord, as we even turn our, our, our time here to once again raise our voices to, to look at your mercy and your grace that you've shared with us, uh, we ask that you be blessed by this in Jesus' name.